But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Mark chapter 8, verse 33. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's a familiar passage, I know, but just to kind of quick run through and frame it so you can kind of see the whole thing in view. Um, the verses in Mark immediately preceding today's gospel is the famous scene when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And it's Peter who confesses, you're the Christ, the, you know, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, but flesh and blood didn't reveal this. The Heavenly Father's revealed this. And immediately upon sort of his identity becoming clear, Jesus then says, okay, and so that you know, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be um, uh, hated and suffer and be killed. And Peter uh, can't receive this message, and so he takes it on himself to rebuke Jesus. Jesus counter-rebukes Peter and says, no, 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 this is exactly what's going to happen. And then he seizes the moment to expand the teaching that not only he is going to die, but actually all who would follow Jesus must um, take an analogous path, right? Take up your cross, his cross, uh, and follow him. So I want to dive into this familiar passage through this uh, little window of a verse I didn't, I've never noticed until preparing for this Sunday when it says that Jesus, seeing his disciples, turned uh, and he turned and saw his disciples and then he rebuked Peter. So, um, you know, picture the scene. So Peter's kind of pulled Jesus, you know, a few steps aside from, from the other 11 and the sort of smaller crowd that is with them. And, and Peter's rebuking Jesus and it, and it says Jesus turned. So you can kind of picture like that movie scene where someone's yammering and the volume kind of turns down. It's like, wah, 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 wah. And Jesus sees the other disciples and seeing them is what catalyzes this launch into the rebuke. So it's interesting to think, what was it about seeing his disciples that catalyzed um, the verbal body slam? As with every action of God, I suppose at the root level, the answer is um, rightly seen to be love. That Jesus, when he saw the other 11, when he saw the disciples, he loved them, and that prompted his response. And the love takes a threefold um, aspect. So the first is that um, because Peter has sort of publicly you know, done this action of rebuking the Son of God, if Jesus hadn't have pushed back on the teaching, that, the thing that Peter was saying, the other disciples could have thought maybe it was true. Like, well, Jesus didn't object to Peter saying it didn't have to be this way. Right? There'd be this uncertainty. And one of the offices of Jesus isn't just, I shouldn't say, this is crazy, isn't just to die for us and to ransom all of mankind. It's also to teach us the truth, that we'd know what is true about him and about God and about our life in God. So out of love, he wants the, all the disciples to know, no, this isn't true. And I think if Peter had done it kind of quietly and in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you know, Jesus, are you sure that it has to be this way? He wouldn't have received so stern a rebuke. But it's because it was in the eye, it was within earshot of the other disciples, Jesus had to correct that what Peter was peddling, which was a false teaching. And especially since Peter had just been given this sort of stamp of approval, he'd, he'd confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Right? It was important that he not be, what he's saying right now, you know, Jesus, you don't have to suffer and die. Be called out for what it is, which is a lie. A lie, um, of course, participates in a way in, in, he was speaking in the way that the father of lies, Satan, would speak. Ever since the Garden of Eden and through to the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, Satan has always been saying at root, 
Um, surely that's not you know, ex the exclusive means of obeying God. Right? Did he really say, like, that? look at the apple. Right? Surely there's some other way you could attain the kingdoms of this earth. And in this moment, you know, the prospect of um, being tortured by being nailed to a wooden cross um, is very upsetting to the flesh. Right? Peter was sort of viscerally like, no, that, that can't be right. That's got to be beneath you, Jesus. And no doubt um, that was Satan's an additional temptation beyond the temptation in the wilderness to continue to try and lure Jesus through the comfort of the flesh. But there isn't. There isn't another way. We know from elsewhere in Scripture it says that the Lamb, Jesus, was sacrificed or slain before the foundation of the world. This has been God's plan all along. It's not like this was some sort of arbitrary working out. This was the will that the Father had for the Son to die, to suffer and to die for us. That was the way that was carved out for him, and so Jesus rebukes Peter so that the disciples don't think otherwise. The second aspect of Jesus' love, I think, and here I'm sort of trying to receive the meaning of the scripture, even though it doesn't say this on the page, but when Jesus looked at his disciples and then he's led to sort of reaffirm his willful submission to the way of the cross, as I think about this, what, what was it? I'm convinced it was his particular love for those 11 men and the larger crowd of disciples that were right with them as well, which chose him to reaffirm his commitment to the cross. He says in John's Gospel, no, greater love has no man than he that lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Peter's saying. You don't have to lay down your life. And Jesus is saying, no, I, I actually will to lay down my life for my friends. And that he looked at them and he knew that if he listened to the lie of Satan, that he didn't there was some other way other than dying. Those whom he loved, Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and James son of Alphaeus and Simon and even Judas, those whom he loved, would still be, if he didn't die, they'd still be bound in their sins. They'd still be lost in spiritual darkness and unable to enter the paradise of God. Sure, the Mosaic system had some Sacrifices that could efface some sins, but there was no cleansing of sin. There was no fundamentally being rescued and ransomed. In fact, Jesus, not Jesus, well, the Spirit of Jesus speaking through Paul, says that even the Mosaic law actually kind of binds you in a way tighter because you're more accountable for those evil deeds. You're bound even tighter to sin and to death. So Jesus sees his friends and he, out of love, out of longing that they would be released from their sins, that they would be forgiven and brought into the ability to enter into heaven and the joy of the Father that he, as God the Son, enjoys. He rebukes Peter and says, no, I'm not, there is no other way other than suffering and death because I love you and I love my friends and my brothers, by extension, each one of us. I think um, the love of God is so great a thing, I'm inclined to sort of say that, to think along the lines as if Jesus loves some abstraction called mankind, and lucky for me, I can kind of sneak into that abstraction. It's not the case. Jesus made each one, every human being, in their mother's womb, and he died for us in particular. Right? There are no other humans other than the ones that have existed and will exist. So he didn't die for mankind. He died for Peter, and for Andrew, and for James, and for Lincoln, and for Luke, and for Brad, right? The, our particular lives out of love for us, that we would have a gift. 
he chose to say, Peter, you're wrong. I'm going to die. This is what I want to happen. Jesus saw his disciples, and because he loved them, he was inclined to rebuke Peter. Um, but there's one third um, aspect of his love. Um, and I think it's this, that Jesus could have rebuked Peter's error, right? And sort of said, no, uh, the son of man must die, and then stopped there. But he doesn't. He actually then goes on to say, and also not just me, but anyone who would follow me also has to take up their cross, and to, you know, which is an invitation to die. I think what Jesus is here doing is correcting um, uh, what could have been a misapprehension that Jesus suffered so that, uh, in this sort of horrible, self-denying way so that we don't have to, right? As if there was sort of, he did it once and for all and that we wouldn't have to imitate him, we could just kind of receive the benefits. So Jesus sort of preemptively um, strikes this falsehood at the root. Whoever would save his life would lose it and we must take up our cross. Um, if we were to, fa- if Jesus didn't expand this and we were to sort of have mistaken Jesus and thought, well, he had to self-deny, but we don't have to, we would then actually fail to be, to receive the gift that Jesus is offering. And I want to, th- there's two varieties this false teaching takes. I think most of us have already heard and rejected the one, which is that if you're in Christ, well, then no harm will come to you. Right? Experience as a Christian shoots that one down pretty quickly. Um, although there's still outfits that teach that. But there's a more sneaky interpretation, a more sneaky version of this um, mistake. And I, I admit I've fallen prey to it in seasons of life, that mistaking when Christ says he, gave, he came to give us life abundantly, mistaking that teaching for some sort of fleshly meaning, when what he means is a spiritual truth. As if being a Christian were a synonym for being like a bon vivant, a uh, one who lives to feast. Let me quote the words of an Anglican priest of the 19th century. Was our Redeemer crowned with thorns that we might be refined sensualists? Did he come down from heaven that we might forget heaven and him steeped in all which we can get of this life's fleeting pleasures of sense? course the rhetorical implied no of course not but that's kind of how we think that's how I'm inclined to think sometimes Christ calls us not only to um, repent of sin and abandon what is bad he actually calls us to deny ourselves even what is good and the arch example of course is Abraham as we just heard in Genesis 22 right there was no greater gift, no greater thing for yourself in the ancient world than posterity. You know, and this is the promised son, the, 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 sing, the heir of Abraham's family. And God asks him to lay down, to sacrifice this good thing. That was self-denial for Abraham. Say, okay, Lord, I will sacrifice this very good thing that you've given me or be willing to sacrifice. Christ calls us to deny ourselves even good things, because even good things of this world, they have a quality of fixing our eyes on this world, and therein's the problem. That it's only through self-denial that we're able to sort of lift the eyes of our hearts up to the things of where God is, as it says in the scripture, set your mind on things above. 
Right? Enjoyment of the things below fundamentally latches our eyes onto the things below. And that's why every Lent is this call to exercise an additional new uh, renewed edge of self-denial. Some good thing that we've laid down so that we can be just one degree less attached to this world and by, and by God's grace one degree more attached, more participating in eternal life and the things of the Spirit now. And the hope is that through the course of a lifetime with every Lent and everything we learn in Lent and carry with us through the rest of the year, that we will continue degree by degree by the grace of his inworking spirit, begin to let go of all the comforts and pleasures that frankly we're drowning in in 21st century America. And this um, call to deny ourselves, the, the enemy would have us hear it like it was the voice of a sort of scolding taskmaster, like, don't eat those nice things in Lent. <laughs> right? Does anybody else hear sort of the Lenten call sometimes in that key? I do. But that's not what it is. It's actually the invitation of love that Christ wants us to follow in his footsteps so that we could receive his glory. It's this positive invitation. Don't you want to know and, and enjoy and participate in the mind of Christ, in the joy of Christ, in the glory of the resurrected Christ? Well then, the only way to do that is the way of the cross, which isn't just having sin crucified, but even the laying down the good things that Christ that God has ordained, for, um, provided for us to have. It's a loving invitation that he gives because he loves us. And all other messages, um, anytime there's a message of um, ease, you know, we're always haunted by those words of the prophet Amos, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. That's one of those verses that just is always a challenge. Any message of ease, worldliness, com- like um, too much comfort, fleshly identity. God rebukes because he loves us, just like he rebukes Peter when he saw his disciples. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes. Amen.